Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Our nation's prison population has exploded. Today, one in 100 Americans are now in jail or prison. The U.S. incarcerates more people per capita than 26 of the largest European nations combined. 80% of offenders abuse drugs or alcohol, and nearly 50% of jail and prison inmates are clinically addicted. Imprisonment has little effect on drug abuse. 60 to 80% of drug abusers commit a new crime, typically a drug-driven crime, after release from prison. As we continue to search for ways to fight the opioid epidemic, drug courts are proliferating throughout our nation. Keeping drug-addicted offenders out of jail and in treatment through drug courts has proven to be effective in fighting the opioid epidemic. But the drug court team in Buffalo, New York, noticed a disturbing trend. While their program was helping many offenders get the help they needed, some died waiting for their day in court. To eliminate the wait time, and save lives in the process, they developed a unique new program, dubbed the Opioid Court. Under this program, they were able to get people into treatment within 24 hours of arrival to their courts. Here to talk about the nation's first opioid court is the project's chief architect, Jeff Smith, and the presiding judge, Greg Hanna, and case managers, Brooke Krause and Megan Carroll, all from the 8th Judicial District Court in Buffalo, New York. In the first of this two-part series, you'll hear from Jeff Smith, the project director, who wrote the original draft of the plan. I'm joined now with Jeff Smith, one of the leaders of the opioid court here in Buffalo, New York. So, Jeff, welcome. Thank you very much. So, tell us a little bit about what's the difference between opioid court and drug court, and what's the genesis of this new type of court, the first in the country? Okay. The, the, uh, the question asked regarding uh, what is the difference, uh, it's easier answered that it is part of drug court. The opiate intervention calendar, the opiate intervention court, is part of a drug court. To operate an opiate intervention court, you need to have an existing drug court going on. And the reason behind that is very simple. Drug courts are outstanding at what they do. The difficulty is because of the type of substance that we are now dealing with, whether it's fentanyl-laced or whether it's just simply heroin or it's some other form of opiate, mm-hmm. oh, excuse me, opioid. What we are dealing with is a drug 
that no longer will take a considerable amount of time before some individual would be found no longer breathing. We have multiple substances in the community that we've treated and have worked with in the past, but nothing like what this epidemic has brought on. And the epidemic is very simple. One use can cause instant death. And because of how we do our criminal justice process, because our criminal justice process affords everyone their, their rights under the Constitution, individuals were being seen at arraignment, having bail placed on them, or maybe released on their own recognizance or an appearance ticket, and unfortunately would go and use that one use, and that one use would cause their untimely demise, and we'd be notified that there was no need for any future court appearances. Those future court appearances that I keep describing, unfortunately, are the ones where people would be entered into a drug treatment court. So before they could get to drug treatment court, they were dying. So you needed to shortcut this process somehow and engage them sooner. Very much so. So one of the keys to this program is filling in the gaps while offenders wait to get into drug court. Approximately three years ago, two and a half years ago, a concept paper was generated. The concept paper was provided to the administrative judge in this district. Generated by you. The concept paper was written by myself, that's correct. And that concept paper uh, simply said, we need to attack this epidemic. We need to deal with the individuals that are under the influence of this epidemic earlier in the jurisprudence process. We need to make sure that the individuals are seen at arraignment the first time the court ever touches them. If I could see them earlier than that, I would, but we don't know about them until they're arraigned. Hmm. So what we set up was very simply individuals that were arrested in the city of Buffalo the night prior, that following morning, every individual is asked a battery of questions, approximately a five-minute survey, if you will. It helps us in many ways. It helps us to know if they are a veteran that, so that they can go in our veterans treatment court. They help us to know if they have some mental health issues, if they have any chemical dependency issues. But also on there were three questions specific to that of opioids. And if an individual answers in the affirmative of any one of those three questions, instead of being arraigned in the traditional arraignment calendar, they are whisked away and brought to Judge Craig Hanna. Can you share the questions? The questions are very simply, have you ever been revived? from an issue surrounding an overdose. Narcan. Revived is what we ask. They may say yes, and it may have been not Narcan, but it may have been something else. <laughs> and then the next question is, do you have any history of or current use of opioids? It may not be heroin. It may not be fentanyl-laced heroin. It may be simply eating mom's pills out of the, out of the medicine cabinet. It doesn't matter. It could be someone who has been uh, uh, historically on pain medication and has been discontinued, and now they're seeking it on the street. But what we are asking is, are you self-medicating surrounding opioids? And then the third question, uh, very simply, is do you want some help? If, so the answer to the affirmative for one of those three, and they're in your three, program. That's right. Any number from mm -hmm. one to three, yeah. they are immediately arraigned in another part than everyone else would be. And the other part is Greg, uh, Craig Hanna's part. So what happens to the charges at that point? All the charges, once they are arraigned, Judge Hanna discusses with the defendant, with their attorney present, and the district attorney present, discusses the possibility of the individual allowing their charges to be held in abeyance for up to and including 90 days. Their charges don't exist, if you will. Their charges are not defendable and they're not prosecutable. And so these charges, let's define the, the range of charges we're talking about, because obviously we're not talking about felonies here. We are talking about felonies. We are. Yes. Okay. We're not talking about violence. 
If another, if the, if the person is charged with harming or injuring another individual, they would not be eligible. If the person is also charged with something that would be considered a weapon of a firearm, that has to be reviewed by the district attorney's office before it would even be considered. But any other charge is eligible. So we have felonies of, I'll give an example, a grand larceny charge of an individual that breaks into a warehouse and cuts out all the copper piping so that they can sell the copper to buy drugs. That's a very, very large felony. However, it is eligible. Wow. Uh, an individual that in the misdemeanor level, we have a significant amount of people that are prostitution charges, significant amount of people that are petty larceny charges. There's not a lot of gentlemen out in the community that walk around stealing cases of tampons or Kotex for their own personal use. So you got to believe they're stealing them for a reason. And what they're doing is selling them on the street to buy drugs. Yeah. So you're letting in... As, as large a group as you possibly can here with this. We will review, we will screen every individual. This is the other piece, and I want to make it crystal clear. Everyone is here with us at arraignment. So everyone is innocent. No one has been found guilty. They've been arraigned on their charges. So we will screen those that have been charged with murder. We will screen those that have been charged with a very heavy-duty assault. Because what if it's not them? What if it's a false identification? What if it's not the correct charge? So by screening them, we can at least know that they're on the radar so that if something is dropped or dismissed, we are there to help them. So that, that if that charge is not real, I'm not suggesting that everyone that is arrested is wrongly arrested. What I am suggesting is very clearly that sometimes mistakes are made. Sure. And mistakes at arrest are not unusual. Uh, we have an outstanding relationship with our local uh, law enforcement authorities, and they have been very helpful at making sure that we make sure our people are safe in the community, and I can elaborate further as we go on. Another key to the success of this program is the court holding criminal charges in abeyance for 90 days while they get the help they need. The arraignment process allows the cases to be held in abeyance. Both attorney, meaning defense counsel, and district attorney agree that they're going to allow that to happen as well. At that moment, every individual in our program is immediately screened for what is considered medically assisted treatment, or MAT. Medically assisted treatment, as I'm sure your listeners know, and if they do not, I will elaborate just briefly, is treatment that is being provided by a physician through the medical community where individuals can receive medication to deal with the symptoms regarding their chemical dependency. It's identical to that of someone reading, receiving medication for hypertension or someone receiving medication for diabetes. Mm -hmm. This medication allows individuals to function within the community without having to need street drugs to do that. So Vivitrol, Suboxone, and Methadone. Those are our three. Mm -hmm. Those three right now are the, if you will, the gold, silver, and bronze standard. They are all the metals you can get as far as doing medically assisted treatment. All those individuals that have been answering in the affirmative of the questionnaire are interviewed the following day by all three of those providers, types of providers. If the individual is confident that they would like to pr participate in a medically assisted treatment program, they may select from the menu and they are immediately established with a physician and within 24 hours they are receiving their medication. That is somewhat unusual. Most medically assisted treatment programs, at least in our area, in Western New York, are anywhere between a four to six week waiting list. Our Department of Health here in Erie County, and thanks to our, our relationship with the treatment providers here in Erie County, we've been able to establish a, a shortcut, if you will, to make sure that these individuals are immediately served 
are immediately brought to the treatment, and in turn, they are then reporting back here to Judge Hanna every day of the week, Monday through Friday, to make sure that they're following through with what they committed to the court. So within 24 hours of arrest, offenders are entered into the program and actually begin medication-assisted treatment. These, these medications beyond that of methadone are fairly new. The research right. is still out on them. But one of the things that just came out uh, from uh, uh, various medical associations and in, and in all the medical journals is that at one time Zaboxin was, if you were within a week's time of using alcohol or, or a benzodiazepine, they could not administer Zaboxin because there may be a negative effect. Every medical journal now says disregard everything you heard about that mm. because the effect of overdosing from heroin is so much more severe than anything the benzo or the alcohol could have done within the week. Give them the strips. Yeah. Let's stop the overdose. Yeah. So as we learn as a community, as we learn as a country, as we learn as, as part of the science, uh, it is still a work in progress. But anyhow, medically assisted treatment is, is the way to deal with this issue and it needs to be done rapidly. It can't be waited on. So they're given all three choices. They make the decision in terms of what choice, what's next? After that, the individual is brought back the following morning. They are still in custody. They're brought back the following morning in their civilian or their street clothing. They are brought to an office here in the court where they are picked up by that treatment provider and taken for their first dose. Once they're taken for their first dose of whatever medication it is, they then are given the instructions by that treatment provider what their counseling schedule is and what their medication schedule is. The following day, they're back with us again in the courtroom, reviewing that with us on a daily basis. So are they let go? Yes, or is sir. They're let go. The treatment provider then, after they counsel them in terms of their obligations under this program, they let them go. For the day. For the day, yeah. And then they're back with us again the following day as well as with their treatment provider. Okay. What To answer the second part of your question regarding capacity, the other thing was, I don't know if it's across the country, but I do know it's only in New York State. Um, we did another first, and that was the thanks to the Office of Alcoholism and Substance Abuse Services for New York State. Uh, for quite some time, the only individual that could administer, the only individual that could order methadone is a physician. Uh, with a request of a waiver within two days, we were allowed to use a nurse practitioner. So we tripled, quadrupled the number of slots. Hmm. that were eligible for methadone. How difficult was it to get that waiver? Uh, it was about five minutes worth of typing on a form. Hmm. And then the form was submitted. Council's office looked at it for the commissioner's office. Council's office signed on it. So within 48 hours, we had the waiver. Within 72 hours, the methadone program was using a nurse practitioner. So, And how we tripped over this, this is what I'm trying to say. I wish I could say that it's just all due to being a sheer genius but we tripped over this. Uh, we release prisoners to treatment at approximately 9.30. Methadone maintenance clinics operate from six o'clock to 10 o'clock, which means everyone we were releasing was missing the clinic closing. We would show, they'd show up, the clinic was closed. So they weren't getting their first dose, they were going out on warrant, mm. and we, we didn't know it. Yeah. And we're talking to each other, we're talking treatment to court, court to treatment, back and forth, back and forth, but no one, no one, saw that as a problem hmm. until we sent the first person. We sent the first person, and thankfully that clinic's doctor stayed till one in the afternoon till oh, that guy wow. finally got out, released out of jail and got his first dose. Yeah. But that's when we stopped the process again because we realized there's no way we were going to get them 
Sure. Because that was a that was an obstacle. That was, I believe, as on your card. That was climbing Mount Everest, and we weren't mm. going to get there. So let's take it from there. So they've selected their uh, medication-assisted treatment of choice, and they've reported then the next day. And for the next 30 days, every single day, they're reporting? That's correct. We have just changed, if you will. Remember, our program started May 1st of last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I affectionately call it the baby. Uh, we're so probably just about to infant stage soon. But for a long time, whether it was media or whether it was other communities wanting to know, similar to if you had a baby, you let only real close relatives come in and see the baby right now. You only let some people come Mm -hmm. in that you're real sure aren't ill right now. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that the baby stays healthy to get to an infant. Sure. Um, We're getting to our infant stages, but for infant stages, there's growth. And our growth found that 30 days, what was originally written in the BJA grant, that was awarded to us. And I'll, I see your face, I will explain uh, in a moment. BJA, the that's... Bureau of Justice Assistance okay. through the Office of Justice Programs, the okay. Attorney General's Office of mm-hmm. the Federal Government. Okay. Anyhow, the, uh, the long and short of it is 30 days is not enough. And the request came from Defense Counsel, even though mm. their clients may be innocent. Like I said, everybody in our program is innocent. They have not been convicted of anything. Mm. And some of these charges we know outright, could probably be dismissed right now. But defense counsel, to their credit, has said, my client needs the help. I don't need to make a motion for dismissal right now. I agree with the program. And now defense counsel has even asked, could we extend it to 90 days? Hmm. We're seeing such great success. We don't want them to fall off at the back end. Really compassionate. So so what we've started, yes, it is a health-based program. It's not about a criminal justice issue any longer. We're dealing with an individual's health. It's interesting to note that defense counselors are actually asking the court to extend the program for their clients up to 90 days, despite the fact that they could potentially get their clients off early. We have, through our grant, uh, the ability to have an agency hire some extra case managers. That agency is the uh, University of Buffalo School of Family Medicine. So we have nursing case managers that are hired. We have other medically medically oriented professionals hired that allow for us to have community-based outreach. So we have people that are visiting and doing home visits. We have the ability to link them with services that they may need that they haven't been able to link with in the past, whether it's through social services or whether through it, it's through the private sector. We link people with educational programs. We link people with vocational programs. It may be simply linking them with family counseling so that maybe they can re-engage with some bridges they had burned through the family. So in short, you're really helping them. During this 90-day period, you're giving them a little time out, and you're helping them along the way with all of those things that they need to rebuild their lives. Most definitely. Wellness checks. What constitutes a wellness check? Two kinds. First kind is uh, the uh, wellness check, which is every individual that is participating with this program has an 8 o'clock curfew. Some may be earlier if they are getting reprimanded for not following through with the 8 o'clock curfew. But it starts out as an 8 o'clock curfew. At the 8 o'clock curfew, in this day and age, everyone has or everyone has access to at their residence some form of cell phone or cellular communication. Mm. That cellular communication must dial a number and leave a voicemail, or if there's a live warm body on the other end, talk to that person at 8 o'clock. Somewhere around 8.05, every individual is then pinged 
on their cell phone or on their cellular device to make sure that where they called from was truly the residence. And by pinged, I mean there is a way that your cell phone can be a, a GPS. It can be a tracking device. Mm -hmm. So we will track everyone to make sure that they have done. And then randomly, we'll track them a little later in the evening to make sure that they stayed there as well. But everyone's curfew is from 8 p.m. until 5 a.m. Wow. Unless there is work or unless there is a family emergency. Terrific. The other wellness check is an individual, individual does not show up for court. Doesn't show up for court in the progress report. Says that they hadn't shown up for treatment or they didn't show up for their toxicology test. So a warrant is issued. Instead of the warrants going into what I affectionately call the great abyss, meaning the warrants are not immediately acted upon because, as you had stated, these crimes are not huge. They are not crimes that will put them on the FBI most wanted list. So the warrants take a little while to be executed. Well, as we talked about early on in, in, our, in our discussion, one dose ends an individual's life. So if they're not in treatment, they're not responding to the, the wellness check as far as the phone, they're not showing up in court, there's a very high probability that they're out using. Yeah. So thanks to our, our sheriff's department and our city police department, they have agreed to treat these warrants as public enemy number one. So we go get them quick. Wow. You don't show, we'll have you back in cuffs, ideally within the next day. Huh. And then when you're back in cuffs, that's where you can stay for another day or so. Mm -hmm. you, know, you made mom and dad worry, if you will. So I'm taking the keys from the car for a while. We're going to do a case, timeout. Yeah. In this case, the keys from the car are uh, a free hotel stay and three hots and a cot at our Erie County Holding Center. Wow. Jeff, I want to thank you for your time here. My pleasure. Give me last comments. Right now, I am very, very pleased with what is going on. I'm very, very impressed with the, the people that have come to our, our, our group as, as stakeholders, I include yourself in that, that people who are of interest and are interested in what we are doing is what we need. It is a, it is a group effort. There is no one individual. It is a judicially driven program, but to drive anything, you need to have wheels and gas and water and all sorts of things to make sure that it moves. And that's what all these parts bring. So between the prosecutor, the public defender, the police departments, treatment of course and then just some some people that are very interested in, in being a part of what we do we are in excess of 200 individuals that have participated since may 1st our grant requirement is a three-year grant we said we would see 200 people over the three-year period hmm. so we have now seen over 200 period over about a nine-month period nine months uh unfortunately we've had one fatality and that one is unacceptable so we're trying to figure out in 2018 how to make sure there's not even one. We've been talking with Jeff Smith, the project director for the Opioid Court in Buffalo, New York, an innovative program engaging in offenders in treatment within 24 hours of arrest. Please join us next time for our second part of this two-part series where we talk with Judge Craig Hanna, who resides over our country's one and only opioid court. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. 
This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.